Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Welcome to another Tej Talks episode, everyone. Today on the show is Dan Brown from Habibo. Really cool name, right? Um, He is known, or at least Habibo is known, for their interesting designs and their darker colour schemes following the Higgy House principle. He's based in Bristol, which is a cool place. I would have done a Bristol accent, but I I can't do it very well. Um, So he talks about his first HMO purchase and how it went really badly wrong. We're talking ceiling being held up by ikea cupboards i mean ikea is good but you know yeah this is not what you want your ceiling to be held up by right um he also talks about the mistakes he's made the lessons he's learned how to work with good builders how to find investors i mean he raised a hundred thousand pounds from instagram alone instagram people where most people be looking at like pets and food and like kylie jenner and the kardashians he raised a hundred thousand pounds with him and his wife helen on instagram he also raised 200 grand in about four months so he's doing pretty good um i'm sure you'll agree so look if you're liking the show please leave a review on itunes or the podcast app this is free there's no adverts apart from me saying this over and over again um or leave a review on the facebook page thank you so much for listening and shout out to the listeners who are listening at 4 a.m If that's you right now, then good morning. Dan Brown, not of the Da Vinci Code, but of Habibo. Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. (laughs) Uh, Thanks very much, Tej, and uh, thanks for having me. But I know you're going to start with that joke. (laughs) I have to catch you a little bit by surprise sometimes. Um, You know, it's it's an interesting way that I I came to know you. I think I, I started my Instagram account, I don't know how many months ago, and then I think your Habibo page was on it, and I was just you know, I followed it as, as kind of one in many. And I really liked the designs and the plants um, and everything that you were posting. And I thought, huh, this is this is really cool. Like, I wish more property investors would have this kind of brand where, like, their own houses are designed in a certain way that reflects, like, what they want to give to tenants. Not just, oh, it's a house with some desks and a sofa. Um, yeah. And I, I know you follow um, the Higgy House kind of principle, Um and the founder, Luke, is going to come on the podcast as well soon. I've uh, invited him on. So I'm, I'm really keen to kind of delve into your story um, and also look at some of the, the issues that you've had with your first property, which, you know, the paper mache house, as you call it, which I'm sure you'll um, you'll get to shortly. But before you got into property, what were you doing with your life? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I still am, partly. Uh, I'm self-employed as a fabricator welder. Um, so I've got a, a small workshop and I offer a, uh, a mobile welding service and I've been doing that for, uh, about seven years now. Um, and that is, well, that, that's, that's the main reason why I've got into property really, because, um, uh, I'm getting older, 44 this year, uh, last year. And, um, one of the reasons for getting into property was, my fabricating and welding is uh, it's quite laborious, it's quite extreme, and it's quite sort of hostile in its environment. So the plan for me was always to be out of the fabricating and welding by the time I was 50 and into something um, 
that involved less me getting my hands dirty and more me uh, making more money. Mm. And how did you discover and realize that property was the way to do this or a potential way to do it? Um, well, uh, the honest answer is I didn't, but my wife Helen did. Um, we, uh, we refurbished uh, our house and also um, converted the loft into upstairs bedroom ensuite and walk-in wardrobe dressing room type thing about two and a half years ago now. And Helen realized, again, not me, that we'd uh, raised, uh, well, we'd got enough equity in the house that we could release uh, about £145,000. And she's having a conversation with uh, a friend of hers at work whose husband was just about to start doing student HMOs. So we didn't have a clue what it was, what you had to do went out for um, uh, some drinks with these guys, had a bit of a chat and um, all sort of snowballed from there, really. So was there anything, any books or any education courses on you went on that kind of, you know, gave you the knowledge to buy your first property? Um, well, I didn't do any education as such. I read some books. Uh, I read uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, which was uh, properly inspiring and um, fell in love with the idea of uh, having some assets. Um, and I read Property Magic by Simon Zucci. And I read Richard Branson's Screw It, Let's Do It. So they, they, those three were pretty much the, the instrumental ones to start me off on the journey. Um, and then it was a case of speaking to anybody who I knew who was in property and found out about my local property meetings and started going along to them. Mm, okay. And then, so tell me about your first property purchase. So it was in Bristol, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I spent quite a long time before we'd actually bought it uh, researching areas in Bristol and going to probably probably about six months worth of pin meetings to learn as much as I can or could uh, from other people and just basically having a chat and you know figuring out what was what and then we finally decided on an area in Bristol that was uh, it's, our, it's it's the same postcode that we live in but it's um it's about a 10 minute drive away from our house and we just had uh, a lot of confidence in the area, a lot of confidence. Um, probably spent about two, three months looking at different properties uh, in and around that area, and then eventually came upon uh, the one that we bought, Five Green Bank Road. And the reason it stood out was because it had been on the market, a sale had fallen through and it had come back on the market. And when I went round to view it, I realized it had some um, some latent space. So it was basically set up as a three bedroom house with a weird sort of, I can only describe it as like a hallway out the back of the house that was about two meters wide and about five meters long, which it wasn't being used for anything. 
And it, it just struck me immediately as it would be the perfect place to put a galley kitchen. And therefore, you could create a five-bedroom house with... I mean, there was some structural alterations that we had to make, but, you know, we're not talking major works. And, um, and yeah, so, so decided to buy that one. Hmm. And, and what gave you confidence in the area? Because I know for new investors, finding an area, especially if you live somewhere like London, where, you know, it's not the rental yields don't necessarily work out. It's like, oh, my God, there's a whole country out there. Where do I go? And then within that town, where do I go within that? So how did you have such confidence in it, apart from the fact that you lived there and you knew the area? Yeah, well, part of the confidence was um, a lot of people were saying, after going to the pin meetings, a lot of people were saying that the, the BS5 area in Bristol was experiencing uh, the highest capital growth at the moment and would continue to do so, more so, people were saying, than uh, the rest of Bristol. On top of that, uh, there's a lot of new cafes, restaurants, uh, a couple of nicely refurbished pubs in the area. Uh, so we knew it would attract the right sort of young professional tenant that we wanted. And on top of that, the property that we eventually bought was ideally situated between a lot of amenities. I mean, it was something like uh, less than half a mile from a train station, uh, bus stop at the end of the road, cycle path actually on the road, uh, you know, almost next door to the house. Um, Tesco's supermarket was a 10-minute walk. Um, you know, it, it just seemed to be perfect uh, with its situation and um, all the sort of amenities around it. Hmm. And, you know, going back to something you said before, you took six months to do your research, do your networking. You then, it took, you know, two months or so of viewings to then find this property. It's 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 great you mentioned that because that's the kind of realism of property. Like we all want, you know, financial freedom. We all want passive income. And we think, oh, we can do it in X amount of time. But, you know, you still took two months. And I'm sure you were working very hard in those two months um, to find one property that was suitable, which also, you know, the vendor could have pulled out. It could have had, you know, tons of structural issues making it, you know, like unfeasible. Anything could have happened, but it still took two months for one thing. And that's something a new investor should really kind of listen to carefully. Um, how did that affect your welding business, having two months to find a property? Uh, I pretty much ran it into the ground. Uh, so uh, I think, uh, like I said, it took two or three months to find the property. And i had had some good jobs previously um, that sort of carried me through, a bit of savings. Um, but yeah, I think we finally uh, offered on the house something like August. And I suddenly realized in September, oh my God, I've actually got no work uh, and no money in the bank. So I had to very quickly get back out there start selling myself and getting in touch with a lot of a lot of my customers and asking them what do you need welded and what do you need done quickly so yeah it, it had a massive impact and I can't you know you hear about people who are doing this with day jobs and I, I genuinely I can't understand how they can possibly do it I genuinely can't they're, they're either you know a thousand times more organized than I was or they're um 
you know, they're, they're pulling miracles out of the bag. So I don't know how people <laughs> can do it. I genuinely don't. Wow. And that's a real uncomfortable situation to be in that you put yourself in. But I guess that's the sacrifice that comes with giving something your all and kind of being passionate and going for it, which which is a lesson in itself. Not for everyone, but, you know, mm. it, it, it's an interesting lesson nonetheless. So how much did you buy the house for? Uh, we purchased the house for 282. It was on the market. It started uh, 310. Uh, and after a bit of negotiating, we got an offer accepted at 282. Um, the refurb costs, hold on, I've got the spreadsheet in front of me. I should really know these off the top of my head. Refurb costs came in at about £65,000. And we got uh, it revalued about six months later at 370 and meaning that we could take uh, about 80,000 back out and put that towards the next one oh, and and am i right in saying that that refurb end cost was almost double what you wanted it to be yes yes it was it was double what we wanted it to be and it was something like uh three times as long the the initial refurb was supposed to take I think it was two months. Like I said, there wasn't a lot of structural work. But once we got into the property, um, <clears throat> we'll probably mention this later, but I've just remembered one, one of my biggest mistakes was not having uh, a structural survey done on this property because, A, um, it would have picked up a few problems, not all of the problems, but a few problems and, and probably saved me some money. Um, but B, yeah, it, well, I don't think there is a B actually. No, there isn't a B. I'm waffling, but um, it, it would have saved me money. But um, when we got into the property, uh, we realised that the whole of the ground floor was uh, the floorboards were absolutely rotten. They were absolutely useless. So we had to replace all that. And then we had to replace all the floor joists. Um, there was a an exterior wall that we were part of it we were taking down it had already got um it was load bearing and, and we thought there was already a, a a steel beam or you know a concrete lintel in there or something uh, and obviously because it's in the wall it's not something you could check but when we started hacking away at the plasterboard we realized it was just a rotten bit of wood was holding up the entire side of the house uh, so you know it, it was a miracle um and we found uh, we took off a ceiling in the in the back of the house, only to find that the a uh, the ceiling floor joists, whatever you want to call them, uh, were like two by two by one batten, sort of doubled up uh, in, instead of whatever the regulation should be. I think it's like six by twos or something like that. And um, the the floor of the bathroom above was basically an old Ikea wardrobe. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, Ikea's got good quality stuff, but I don't know if it's yeah. that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just find problem after problem after problem, um, and it just took an age to get it done. Yeah, two, two months refurb, and I think it was initially priced at about 35 maybe 38 um, And then, yeah, with the extra works, it ended up taking six months. No, it wasn't six months. Sorry, it was five months. Just, just, just under five months and sixty-five thousand pounds. So yeah, budget doubled. 
and uh, time tripled. It was it was quite horrendous at times, to be honest. Um, but yeah, once you're in, you're in. No. <laughs> That's stop. <laughs> and it's interesting you mentioned the building survey because when you were talking about the structure, I was just thinking, but surely you got a building survey done. So I was like, how did this not come up? But I think that's like an interesting point because people are like, oh, you know, when I'm buying a property, I got to spend searches, I got to do building surveys, and then, you know, we might pull out. But that 500 quid or, you know, whatever on a building survey could potentially have saved you and anyone else 30 grand. And, you know, if it was on a bridging loan, for example, it can save you two months worth of interest um so it's yeah that's just so important you know get you know if it's an older property and you're kind of not sure about it and it's you know it's not like a new build then really you know get a structural survey it's so cheap compared to what you could spend as dan has highlighted for us thankfully (laughs) i gotta say though i gotta say that it it doesn't always work like that we've um we've got a property that we're um uh we're just about to exchange on well actually hopefully tomorrow and I had a structural survey done on that back in November, and I asked the structural surveyor to pay particular attention to the roof on this one because I'd spoken to uh, the next door neighbour of the uh, of the house, and they'd said they'd had problems with their roof. So he reported back that the roof was fine. Uh, didn't believe him. Thought I'd triple check. Got my builder to go in, and my builder. Um, did a uh, short video for me of him up in the loft and basically pulling out a load of rotted wood that was holding up the uh, the roof. So, you know, even, even when you get a structural survey done, you're, you're not completely covered. Wow. And, but, you know, in that um, case, couldn't you, couldn't you go back to the structural survey company and say, you've missed this, you owe me, et cetera, et cetera? Sorry, I lost you then, Tej. You back? Yeah, could you not go to the the structural surveying company and say, you know, you didn't spot this. It's cost me X amount. You owe me, sort of thing. Uh, to be honest, uh, I didn't bother because we once I'd got the evidence from my builder, we uh, put it in that we had to get the roof replaced, and they took the price of the new roof off the uh, purchase price anyway. Well, wow, um, sorted. Yeah, so it was a happy ending. And uh, I must admit, with everything going on, uh, it was just completely forgot to um, chase up the structural engineer. But um, to be honest, I I think probably that maybe I should chase these things up more, but I think probably they'll have put something in their claws and, you know, contract notes to say that they're not doing a completely uh, all-invasive survey a lot of these things i mean i've got friend of a friend's a structural surveyor and they they've turned around and said a lot of the time we go in have a look if we don't see any cracks you know in the in the walls or whatever we don't really pay a lot of attention to what's going on so (laughs) useless um so the interior design of this of this hmo of the first one was really really cool and really interesting i know there were some people debating they didn't like the color scheme of it on Facebook, what yeah. what kind of I know the Higgy House kind of principles inspired you, but what inspired you to go with a darker shade as opposed to the usual white, grey kind of bright colours? Yeah, um, well, yeah, as you said, Higgy House have sort of been a bit of a bit of an inspiration towards us. But to be perfectly honest, we uh, decorated and refurbed our own house, uh, as I said a couple of years previously, and we'd done that with very dark colours, and we absolutely loved it. 
And the feedback we've got from our own house, uh, from various friends and family and, you know, sometimes even the flipping postman. Uh, and they all said they, they thought it looked fantastic. So um, I basically said, I said to my wife, Helen, who's always, always had a very good um, interest in, in interior design. I just said, just just do whatever you want, because uh, I'm completely colorblind, so I don't get involved in that. Uh, I said, do whatever you want. Um, just make it look special. Um, most importantly, at the time, I said, make it stand out. Because, you know, you look down through spare room and it's just room after room after room of magnolia, you know, white. Just all the rooms look the same. They all look pretty boring. And we just wanted to do something different. And I should add as well, the, the area that we bought in, um, it's an area in Bristol called Eastern, uh, in particular Green Bank. And it's, I mean, Bristol loves its art, as you as you probably know. You know, people like Banksy, uh, you know, already obviously very famous. And the the street art around Eastern, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And the road that we uh, bought this house in, you look up the road, every, every house is a different colour. So, you know, it, the, the colour scheme it pretty much suited the street as well as um, being a colour scheme that we loved. So, you know, for us, it was a no brainer. And also as well, being in Bristol, we've got, we're pretty lucky, you know, we've got such a lot of different uh, tenants from, you know, professionals, um, all the industry to, you know, students. And we've got such a glut of tenants that we felt that even if half the tenants hated it, then, you know, we'd still be able to fill the rooms with the other half of the tenants who loved it. Hmm. And then how did you find good and trustworthy builders to take on this project for you? Well, uh, well that, was a, that was another sort of, it was a bit of a gamble, to be honest, because the, uh, the builders that we got to take it on, we'd used them before in the past. They, they actually did a, uh, the refurb of our own house a couple of years back, and he'd done a, because I'm a fabricator welder and I go out and fit gates and stuff, I often get jobs where, you know, we've got to build walls or whatever. So I'd used him for a smaller, a few other small jobs. Um, but then um, I think it was about two months before the job was going to start. He actually contacted me to say that um, he was starting a new company and he was looking for looking for work. So I said, all oh, right, well, uh, we've, uh, we've got this job coming up and, most importantly, I'll say most importantly, a big a big factor was um, because he was a new company, he wasn't actually registered for VAT yet because we were his, officially his first customer. So we managed to save <clears throat> some money there. So, so yeah, so we had a bit of history with the guys and, um, yeah, just decided to give them a go. And um, fingers crossed, it's been, uh, it's been great ever since. They're starting our fourth project in about well, hopefully about six weeks, but it might end up being eight to 10. Hmm, okay. And so first deal, HMO, you know, uh, a little bit trickier than expected, um, a challenge, a learning experience, I guess we could call it. What What did you move on to after that? Uh, well, after that, we, uh, we bought a three-bedroom detached house and with the, with the house came... Uh, quite a large plot with planning permission to build uh, a three-bedroom house on a plot. And so we thought, right, 
let's go and build a house. Obviously, uh, the next logical step. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, obviously. Um, I always took it on with the view that I knew it was going to be hard, uh, and I knew it was going to be unbelievably challenging. But I also knew that when I came out the other side of it, my knowledge would have been, you know, it, it, it would have just the vertical learning curve that's come with it, whilst being at times, if I'm honest, stressful, um, it's, you know, it's, it's going to set me up for the next 10 years in terms of uh, education and uh, knowledge gained. Mm. And is that project completed? Uh, no, not yet. We're um, So the, the three bed house, uh, we put a 30 square meter ish extension out the back and we're creating a six bed all on suite HMO, and that should be finished by the end of this month. Uh, the new build started last month, uh, so foundations are dug, foundation has been poured, uh, but the finish date on that one is going to be about April, probably the end of April for that one. Huh. Uh, is that going to be a family home? Uh, well, it's a it's a three bed house. So, to be perfectly honest, I haven't actually completely decided what we're going to do with it. Um, it's either going to be a small four bed HMO, um, or we're going to sell it, or I'm having a. I don't think it's going to work because of where it is, but maybe service accommodation. Okay, keeping your options open. So, what what are the figures on this sort of deal? Uh, the figures on the deal at the moment, the Eagle Road deal, uh, purchase price is, what's that, that's 310. Uh, development costs are working out to be about 300 uh, for the HMO and the new build and the end valuation, uh, well, actually it's going to be confirmed on Monday, but we're looking at about 775 and it basically means that at the end of it, we should, uh, well, I think we're going to leave about 50 grand in. Uh, it's about a 50% ROI and it should cash flow. Well, actually, I've got to readjust my figures on the cash flow, but it should, it should cash flow about 3000 to about three thousand three hundred net uh, a month. Wow. Okay. And that's that's from one deal, and you're only leaving in fifty k, and it's going to be cash flowing enough to you know get someone out of their job. Really, I mean that's that's pretty powerful stuff from from property, right? So, yeah. how did you find this deal? Um, well, it was actually a, it, it wasn't in my search criteria. It was initially on for. Um, 340 and I generally do searches from about 200 to 300 maybe sort of three three two five um, but a friend of mine sent it to me as a bit of a joke saying uh, this house is up for sale why don't you go and buy it and, uh, <laughs> good so, joke that ended up to be huh yeah 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 definitely he was um, I didn't I didn't tell him that I'd gone and viewed it but then uh, when I had the offer accepted, I told him that <laughs> he, was, uh, he was pretty flabbergasted. But um, so, yeah, so, I mean, and the reason we bought it, you know, it was, A, it's, uh, it seemed like a good deal to us. And um, 
the, the existing three-bedroom house. It's a detached house. Um, the bedrooms are, they're about 18 square meters each one. I mean, the hallway in itself is uh, 10 square meters. And it's just a, a fantastic open spaces, lots of light, lots of gra- uh, area. That, you know, there's a couple of parking spaces there as well. It just it just reeked of HMO, and since well, after I bought it, pretty much every every single person, even slightly linked to property in Bristol, has mentioned that they've you know knew about it or saw it or you know were, were thinking about going to view it. Somebody's got you know uh, uh, connections to it in some way, shape, or form. Mm. So if we zoom out of your portfolio and we kind of Look at it from a top level. What what does it currently consist of? Is it four HMOs? Uh, well, not quite. Uh, I mean, we've got the one HMO that's up and running. Uh, that nets us uh, about £1,500 a month. Uh, we've got the six-bed all-on suite that's going to be finished uh, at the end of this month. Uh, I've got two rooms already let. Um, amazingly, I actually I actually let two rooms. Uh, seven weeks before it was even finished um, <clears throat> and there being uh, two rooms let at 750 a month uh, and we're advertising the other four at 750 as well uh, and then the new build should be finished around April time and as I said not sure if that's going to be kept or sold yet um, and then we've got another uh, three-bedroom house that we're converting to a five-bed uh, two bathroom HMO that's starting uh, should be next month sometime and that should only be uh, a three month refurb so we should have tenants into that one by well by April uh, April May time and we're currently looking for more properties so you know once sort of the rest of them are done that's a pretty nice income just from a couple of properties where you know, you're leaving in bits of cash, but not nothing sort of huge. So, like, how? And actually, quick, those, those room rates you mentioned are they normal for Bristol, or are they higher because of your design and the way you have a communal space and things like that? Um, they're higher. They're higher. The one, uh, the one in Green Bank, uh, our top room there goes for six hundred and fifty a month, and that is. Um, <clears throat> It's about 16 square meters with an ensuite. Uh, and the ones at Eagle Road, the six-bed all ensuite, uh, I think the, the closest one in the area is probably about, do you know, I'm not actually sure. But I guess I'd say the closest one in the area is about 600, 625. But as the, the two girls who came and took two of the rooms said, you know, the... I think there's quite a big jump from our standards, uh, from everyone else's standards, sorry, up to our standards. The, the communal area itself, for, for six people, regulations say that the communal area has got to be uh, 20 square metres, but we've made sure that it's, I think it actually works out to be about 31 square metres plus um, you know, the, uh, the appliances we're putting in, there's, there's obviously two ovens because it's a six bed, uh, two big, large uh, fridge freezers. But we're also putting in two washing machines and a dryer. Um, and that combined with the, 
the large communal space, you know, and standard things like a smart TV with a house Netflix account. Um, yeah, just means that we can um, get the higher rents. And <clears throat> goes a little bit back to your introduction about how you were saying about our brand um, and building the brand. And, you know, a big part of, of the property uh, stuff for us is to ensure that we build a brand that people can A, trust, B, um, actively, you know, look out to see if we've got rooms going um, and see, know that, you know, we exceed expectations in our in our room sizes and in our standards of living. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's so interesting because, like, yes, your decor and your designer refurb is going to cost more, but the end product is so much better that in a market that, you know, I, I don't know Bristol, but I can imagine there's quite a few HMOs, especially since a lot of Londoners are kind of moving up there and the economy and the kind of the hipsters have taken over and it's like all artistic and everything. It, it's fantastic. I, lo- I love Bristol. Yeah. That, that means that more people are moving in and more people are going to create HMOs. You know, you're right in that everything you do is is standing out. And that's like a lesson, I guess, for everyone in business, like have a USP, have something that makes you unique, like you know, take that little step extra, you know, put that extra plant in, dress it slightly better than your competition, because at the end of the day, you'll get higher room rates, which you're getting, and you'll be in business for longer and better and create a brand. And, you know, buying two appliances, you know, even if some of them aren't for regulations, is again, like a quality piece that most, I guess, people wouldn't do. But what you get in return from that is probably less headache from tenants um, and a better reputation, which can mean a lot right yeah definitely definitely and i mean also as well i mean bristol is such uh, a growing market for hmos you know they're, they're, they're popping up all over the place all over the place and in order for your hmo to stand the test of time um you know and stand out from the crowd you, you you've got to raise your game and you know we we're creating homes that, with habibo that that people want to want to live in that people love to live in um and want to stay there you know we, we we don't want to be replacing tenants every sort of six months or so we want our tenants to create a home that they can enjoy living in yeah and and that's the power of storytelling right you use the word home that they love to live in they want to live in and even as i was listening to you i was just like feeling emotions of oh if, if i had a home like that i would think yeah that design is awesome I'd want to live there and you'd treat it like your own home. And that storytelling without maybe necessarily knowing it is so important for your brand and for other investors to do with, yeah, even if they haven't got the same design as you, but they can do something pretty cool. If they're telling a story about it and capturing emotions in it, yeah. it's going to do all those things that you mentioned. Um, so properties cost money, obviously. Um, so does the refurb. Are you still using your own money from equity and savings or are you working with investors? Uh, we're doing a combination of all of it, really, at the moment. We've got um, we've got our own money in the deal in Eagle Road. Uh, we've also got investors on board. Um, uh, we're doing uh, we're looking at doing some JVs in the future. Um, so yeah, so it, it's basically coming from from all places at the moment, and it's um, it's exciting really to to go into the the investor arena as I call it. Um, but in, uh, yeah, in the last, 
In the last four months, uh, I've raised uh, just under 200,000 of private finance, which has gone towards um, the projects ongoing and future projects. And, um, and yeah, and like I said, because we are looking, well, the goal is actually to get, not including the one that's starting next month, but the goal is to get six more properties this year. So we are, we're actively out. I'm, I'm constantly looking at um, houses and new deals. And, um, and yeah, there's plenty more room for, for more people to come on board and make some passive income if they want to. Absolutely. And, and 200K in four months is, is, you know, is pretty, pretty good. You know, that's like, there's a lot of investors or, or property people who would love to raise that much even across a year. So I'm going to make this, this question more difficult for you, excluding the fact that you already have a property to use as marketing material. What made you so attractive to investors that they wanted to give you 200 grand ish over four months? That's a good question. <laughs> um, if I'm perfectly honest, uh, I, I think a big part of it is um, uh, is my personality um, and my openness. Um, I'm not trying to pretend I'm anything I'm not. Um, you know, uh, the investors that we've got on board at the moment, I've sat down with each and every one of them, uh, you know, over a coffee, a sandwich, a beer, whatever, and. You know, we, we've basically had a chat for sort of half an hour to an hour, well, sometimes a few hours. And, uh, you know, where I've, I've told them my story, I've told them what I've done, I've told them what I'm going to do. And, I've, and I think more importantly, I've told them how I'm going to do it, um, you know, in terms of uh, Habibo Homes creating these, you know, bold, beautiful homes. And coupled with the fact that our social media presence has grown uh, a hell of a lot over the last six months um, due to Helen, my wife's amazing input in that area. Um, it's just put us in front of a, a lot of different people. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've got two more meetings um, probably next week, actually, with two more possible investors who are very keen to get involved in some way. Uh, one of them has um, expressed an interest. He, he just wants to make some passive income, basically. And um, so, yeah, so I'd say, A, uh, I've been quite lucky, and B, uh, just being open and honest. Um, you know, it, it, it's, you see on Facebook all these people that all, all they show is, you know, all, all the fantastic stuff that has happened. But I, I feel personally that it's very important to, you know, explain that there's a lot of problems. There's a, there's, there's quite a few failures. Um, you know, and there's a lot of uh, lows to the highs. Um, and uh, I, I think that just paints a more honest picture of what's actually going on. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I think generally the world of kind of business and entrepreneurship, as much as there's you know kids in Lamborghinis that are rented on on Instagram and all that crap, like it's definitely changing to the more kind of like vulnerable or real aspect of, of what people are going through, whether that's mental health uh, during their entrepreneurship journey, whether that's, you know, the roof being held up by Ikea cupboards, you know, whatever it is, people are really, really um, digging that now. It's it's kind of not cool to do it, but it's definitely the right way to go about business to show people what it's really like. Um, and I think I know the answer to this, but it sounds like, you know, social media, I know Helen kind of looks after that, but has been pretty vital in some of your success in securing finance. 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, we've probably uh, we've had about a hundred grand that's um, come directly through uh, Instagram. People who have uh, uh, been following, and again, it's it's, it's mostly Helen, um, been following uh, us on Instagram, and uh, and yeah, it, uh, you know, social media has been so incredibly important. I mean, it's um, it's been life changing. I mean, a hundred grand from an app that is free and most people use it to look at non-work stuff. Yeah. Um, is food, food, food and pets. Generally. Yeah, food yeah. and pets, definitely. And you raised a hundred I mean, that in itself, like, I know how powerful social media is, but even when I hear this, I'm just like, this is crazy. Like, you're not posting anything like, ludicrous or out there or like really complex or anything like you're just posting well you're documenting you're not creating content you're just documenting your lives with pictures which is really easy to do writing some good captions hashtagging it obviously Helen knows what she's doing and you've got 100 grand I mean to people who are listening if you're not using social media or you're not using it effectively like Dan and Helen are there's a 100 grand or more on Instagram literally sitting there in a bag with a with a dollar sign on like in the movies yeah waiting for you and yeah well, there's uh there's, there's there's unlimited money out there there's yeah. unlimited money out there and the people who say there's no money out there are, are totally wrong and i mean we, we we've sort of made it sound a bit easy but you know the the, the key here is um persistence um it's uh continuity and it's uh, it's commitment. It's commitment to posting regularly. It's commit commitment to posting, you know, decent decent content. You know, um, it, it's 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 not been easy. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, there's been times where Helen said, you know, God, I'm bad. You know, the the pressure of having to post every single day, whether it's a video, a photo, or a, you know, or a logo picture, is you know, some days it, it can get a bit much and. You know, we've actually backed off over Christmas. We've both said, look, you know, we need to <clears throat> we need to have a bit of a wind down and rest from from all of it, including the social media. So, so yeah, it's been uh, slowed down a bit. But, yeah, persistent persistence is key, I think. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, it can become a job in itself. Um, and I know, you know, there's a lot of talk about outsourcing and leveraging. I think... Yes, some aspects of social media you can, but because it's all about having, yes, Habibo is your company, but you also have a personal brand. And I think it's for anyone who's thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just outsource it. I wouldn't outsource your personal brand. You can outsource the creative, like, you know, designs and stuff, but it has to be you and it has to be authentically you um, or else people are going to see through it. So now, what are you doing next in property? I know you want to get six more properties. Is that six more HMOs or do you want to like build from the ground up or do blocks of flats? What's kind of on the horizon? Um, well, the thing is with me, I'm a bit of a magpie. Uh, I, <laughs> you know, if I see something shiny, I'll, I'll immediately go flapping over to it and have a quick look. So uh, we're start. We're, 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 I suppose our core, our core strategy is buying three bedroom houses and turning them into five or six bedroom HMOs, uh, basically as quickly as possible. Um, you know, sort of two, three month refurbs really. Um, but on top of that, I'm, um, uh, just before Christmas, I appraised 
uh, a deal where I, I, I sent out uh, a load of uh, director vendor letters um, to a lot of commercial sites and plots uh, in my local area, um, asking people if they were interested in selling them because the you know the the, the properties themselves were quite run down. Um, we had some good feedback from that, and we've been in talks with a couple of uh, owners of uh, various plots around Bristol. So we're appraising a deal at the moment where um, we're hoping we can build about nine to 12 flats uh, from the ground up in Bristol. And there's, uh, there's a couple of others sort of similar to that that, We've got to get round to appraising, but you know it's not a it's not a quick process appraising all these deals and and getting the the offers in and you know all these offers if they if they do go in they will be subject to plan and approval. So um, so yeah, so again it's not a quick thing, but we're trying to get the aim is to have one one big project going once a year, whether that's a new build or a you know a development of whatever size and uh, and a few hmos each year mm, okay awesome and you know we kind of briefly spoke about bristol but like and this is a very broad question so you know answer it whichever way you want yeah. what are your thoughts on the property market in bristol thoughts on the property market in bristol it's very interesting actually because i hear so many people say that you can't make money in Bristol it's too saturated um you know blah 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 you can't do it um I I, I don't think that's true at all I mean I, I spent uh I think it was either yesterday or the day before a whole day sticking uh at, at first I thought it was only going to be about two or three properties into my um I use a bit of software called Podio to to organize all my leads and after Quite a long day doing it. I probably had about 16, 16 leads in there, uh, all four possible HMOs. Three, my, my three favorite ones I then did uh, a spreadsheet for, and all three were um, deals that created, you know, roughly sort of anything from 1,200 to 1,500 net income. Uh, and all only left uh, about 20, 30 or 40 grand in the deal. So I, I think Bristol's a fantastic market, but I think the key thing is patience. You know, any any area, you know, you can have a quick look and think, oh, there's no, no, no decent stock in this area. You know, I've got to move on. But the key thing is patience. You know, you, you create these leads, uh, you know, you, you do what you would with them at the time, but a lot of them, you're basically just setting them up to watch them, you know, and six months later, they might still be on the market. They, you know, they might have dropped in price by 50,000 pounds. And then they turn from, you know, really good leads into amazing leads. So Bristol market, I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I think there's plenty of areas in Bristol, um, that are very rentable and if you're doing the hmo strategy um you know i i don't think you can go wrong really and you know i've heard it said before in many other interviews by other people you know property is so forgiving you know the the mistakes we made on our first one yes we you know doubled the budget but you know 1500 quid a month 
you know, it's not passive income, as any landlord knows, but, uh, you know, it's a good income. And uh, five, six years from now, you know, we'll probably have all our money back out of that. So, so yeah, so I think Bristol's a fantastic market and there's plenty of room for a lot more people to invest here. Awesome. And, and I really, like I said before, I really like Bristol. It's just got character, you know, like it kind of it is a city, I guess, and it's growing and whatnot, but it just kind of has a bit more of a relaxed feel, you know, kind of getting out of London, but still being somewhere like built up and everything. It's just, yeah, it's just a, it's just a nice place. Um, and you mentioned a podio. I mean, is there an app or resource or platform or some bit of technology software that you just can't live without? Um, yeah, I mean, podio definitely. Podio is brilliant. Um, again, Helen helped me find, well, Helen found Podio. Helen actually set it up initially. She's fantastic with systems. And um, using that to keep a track of properties that I'm offering on, uh, you know, and, and, and what's uh, available on the market, I find that invaluable. Um, it's very easy to set up notifications. So, you know, even if a house is sold and I lose a deal, uh, you know, I'll still follow up every sort of month or so uh, just to check the sale of that property. You know, there's no problems or anything and, uh, you know, there's no way I can step in and take over if a sale falls through. Um, so Podio definitely is very good. Um, another app that I really enjoy using at the moment is uh, Slack, which is a sort of halfway in between WhatsApp and Facebook. So it's a great place that I can uh, it's a bit of a brain dump for me. So I'll have I'll have a different ongoing project uh, and it'll have its own area and I can basically dump documents uh, and thoughts, you know, floor plans, scheduler works into there. And it's, it's very easy to access that on the mobile when I'm out and about to, to, to use that with. Um, and then another app that I use is one called My Measures. And that's great for being out on site and uh, taking photos and attaching quite simply dimensions to uh, to the photo. So, you know, good for measuring up when I'm going around to see properties that haven't got haven't got floor plans and stuff. Mm, awesome. I love Slack. It's like the simplest sort of invention, but they are super rich, the owners of it, because it's such a good idea and like everyone uses it in business. So awesome. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. definitely look at Podio as well. I think that might be quite useful for me. Um, so Dan, this unfortunately brings us to the close of the podcast. Just have the quick fire round remaining. Mm -hmm. So what would be your top three tips for new people in property? Right. Top tip. My first top tip, are we talking about property in general or are we talking about HMOs? Whichever you want. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go with HMOs because it's the HMOs that I know. So my top three tips would be, first tip would be uh, get out there and it, it's sort of, it's a little bit of a, it, well, it's not a plug, but it's a recommendation. Guys that helped me very early on were the inside property investing guys, uh, Mike and Victoria Stenhouse. And I went along, I paid, I think it was a hundred quid. Um, this was only last year. So I was, you know, we'd already done our first HMO, but uh, I paid a hundred quid. I got a load of course content about HMOs, uh, loads of education, loads of spreadsheet templates. It was absolutely brilliant. 
Um, so that would be my first top tip. Go and have a look at those guys and see what they're doing. Um, second tip would be once you actually get started, do your schedule of works. You cannot do a property without doing a schedule of works and you'll need to do a detailed floor plan um, to include all your furniture, you know, all your light switches, all your internet points to create a schedule of works from. You know, you, you, you can't literally get too detailed with this. You've got to do everything room by room because, you know, putting a TV point in the wrong place is, you know, it, it can be catastrophic if it ends up being above a bed or something. You know, it's, it, it might not seem as important and you might think that you can just go around at the end of the, towards the end of the job and just point on walls as to where these things are going. But, you know, you're opening yourself up for um, a load of mistakes if you start doing that. Um, and, yeah, I suppose the only other thing is get yourself a decent broker. Get yourself a decent broker who knows the area that you want to invest in. Um, and that will save you a lot of money. Okay, awesome. And then what are the biggest mistakes that you've made? Well, biggest mistake... Uh, ironically, was no scheduler works for uh, my first HMO. So I basically just said to the guys, make me an HMO and hurry up and do it. Uh, and we'd go around on a sort of weekly basis and decide where things were going. Miraculously, it turned out okay, but uh, it would have been a lot more organized and less fraught if I'd have done my scheduler works. Um yeah, I, th I think that's probably my, my biggest mistake so far. Cool. And then what are your sort of biggest three goals for the future? It could be personal, it could be career, it could be property, anything. Go for it. Um, I suppose my biggest goal at the moment is uh, within five years, I want to either own or partly own uh, a ski chalet in the Alps. And uh, if there's anybody out there who has experience of buying property in France, uh, and in particular, a, a ski chalet, if there is somebody like that, then please get in touch because I desperately want a holiday home in the Alps so that we can celebrate Christmas and do a bit of skiing. Sounds awesome. Dan, the next time I'm in Bristol, we definitely need to meet up um, for sure because this has been so interesting. I think we could probably talk for a lot longer. Um, yeah. I don't know if anyone would listen, though. Um, and then next time you're in <laughs> London, definitely... <laughs> Definitely let me know if you come down to London, but there's there's a lot of information in this podcast and insight that people are really going to love. Um, and I'll share your Instagram and Facebook pages with everyone in the show notes so they can um, have a look at the visuals that we kind of spoke about. And yeah, sure. yeah all that's left is for me to say thank you so much. Yeah, if I can just add as well, um, Tej, I, I've actually um, uh, I've prepared... Uh, it's like, um, it's, it's, it's a bit basic, but it's an HMO checklist um, that uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with me uh, via our Instagram or Facebook, um, then uh, I'd happily send that out for free. Uh, it's, uh, I've sent it out to quite a few people already, and it's just uh, it's a nice document with some examples of scheduler works, uh, floor plans, uh, and just a few of the top tips mostly regarding the the order um that you need to do things in and uh yeah, i've had some good feedback from it so anybody who wants it you're welcome to have it
Amazing. Thank you so much, Dan, for sharing that. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.